Well, Happy New Year, Grace Point Church. So nice to be here. Uh, the first speaker of the year. Hey, is that a privilege? You know, as you prepare a sermon, as you prepare to expound the Bible, um, it can put pressure on you. And one of the great things that uh, helps me is to look around and realize that everyone here is on a journey. Uh, the pulpit is really a ministry of reminder. It's, it's not really teaching. It's a reminder because God, if God's not already doing something in your journey, uh, what's the point? So, for instance, you're out there listening, and you hear uh, Isaac and Rachel up here. What, can, what do you hear that God's actually teaching them? What did you hear through that? I know you heard it. Trust, yeah, you see that? Trust. Like, I, I know the two things that everyone wants to know, but I already know them. Um, who am I going to marry, and what am I going to be when I grow up? I already know that. You know, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? And uh, Gunnar will tell you because um, Gunnar, uh, uh, you know, his method of sanctification and learning, is, it was learned in, in BUDS in the Navy, and it's, it's only this push-up you got to worry about, and then this push-up, and then this push-up. So all you got to do is do what you do today, right? All, you know, that's all you got to do. You give yourselves permission to be human, enjoy um, going off in the mission field, and yet you are concerned about finances. It's all like... If we're really godly, we wouldn't tell people that. But yeah, of course you think like that. And then a, a baby coming in. If, if only you knew people that actually had experience with babies. Wouldn't life be good? <laughs> you might know a few. Well, we get to get into the Word of God, and I just, I, I'm just i sitting there thinking, okay, they're already on a journey. It's lovely. Um, we're doing one verse today. One verse. Per Gunner, he, I, I follow orders. It's going to be First John uh, 5.13. There's an outline that should pop up there, First John Five thirteen, and I'm going to read that, but I'm going to um, actually start at verse eleven because I think they're a unit. So let's go ahead and pray as we get into the Word of God. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're about to open Your Word, and, and there's a lot of showy things that we can do and say uh, we, we want we want to be liked. We want all these things, but God, all that aside, this is the Word of God. Been here much longer than we have. We'll be here long after we're gone, and the truth is truth because it's founded in a true God. So Lord God, please give us your truth today. Help us to the yield to the things that are uncomfortable. Help us to come along to the things we don't understand and help us to trust you through it in Jesus' name. First John 5, starting in verse 11. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. I write these things to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. Yeah. Heavenly Father, what we are not make us, what we know not teach us, and give us something of yourself to this word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, three-point message here. Three-point message here is pretty simple. Uh, one verse. This is really an amazing truth. Not only can we know that we have eternal life, but God actually wants us to know that we have eternal life. That's what this verse says. I mean, consider all the things in life you cannot know. Uh, the performance of the stock market. The marriage that will last a lifetime, maybe. Or the state of your health from one day to the next. You don't know. And still, the most important thing in life, eternal life, your right standing before God continually for all eternity is something you can know. Isn't that great? God doesn't want us in doubt about this thing. 
So what is eternal life? Well, certainly eternal life is the continuance beyond uh, death, uh, heaven uh, in the presence of the Lord, um, the opposite of eternal punishment. It's the good thing. However you encapsulate that, you can read about it in the Bible, it's really good. But Jesus says this about eternal life, and this really moved me. In John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And that's now. Eternal life begins now. Eternal life is something that begins today and continues beyond. And suffice to say, it's the very good thing. It's the very good thing. Now, the question is, how do we obtain eternal life? I'm reminded I was out in the uh, coffee uh, area, not at this church, at another one, and one of the, the young couples was talking about, oh, every week the pastor gives the gospel and tells about eternal life. Can't we get into the, into the deep, important stuff? <laughs> if, you don't enjoy the, if you don't enjoy hearing about eternal life, there's some challenges you have to deal with. The teaching here is certainly conditional. It's conditional. Eternal life is not afforded to everyone. The verse tells us, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might have eternal life. Eternal life and and the assurance of eternal life are for those who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's who it's for. Now, it's important that John did not say those who believe in Jesus. He uses the more encompassing phrase, believe in the name of the Son of God. Biblical belief in Jesus is not simply this historical belief like, yeah, I believe there was a Jesus, sure. That's not belief. Biblical belief, saving belief, is belief in all the things, all the these things that are taught about the name of the Son of God. And this is an important distinction. The verse tells us that belief in Christ guarantees salvation, guarantees salvation. And with such a bold assertion, we need to make sure we understand the fine print before we hang our hat on this. We need to understand what the these things are if we're to be sure that we have eternal life. Now, Gunnar pointed out a couple of weeks back that the these things actually encompass all of the teachings of the first five chapters of First John. And I think it's very safe that we can expand that in all of the teachings that John taught in the Gospel of John. It's the same guy, same principles. And with that in mind, we need to understand what John teaches about Jesus. So we're going to do some review this morning. Oh, review time, yes. What are the these things? Let's review 1 John, and let's look at the these things that are taught by John. And in doing this, take time to evaluate if you generally believe the these things that John tells you, you have to believe. See if where, you, where you stand in this. Gunner's already explained each of these points uh, in total, so I'm going to run through them rather quickly, but they're just a generalization of what we've learned. So the first thing is, uh, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. First John 1, 2. What we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made known to us. Jesus was there before everything was. He was always there. He's with God. John, uh, 1 John 5, 5 uh, adds to this. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has this connection with God that was always there. 
If we don't hold that Jesus is an eternal being, we're not believing the, these things. You don't have eternal life. John holds that Jesus was not a created being. Jesus was with the Father before he came to earth. In the Gospel of John, John more clearly states that Jesus is, in fact, God. Now, while the aim of today's passage is not to develop your Trinitarian view, the teachings here certainly support that. If Jesus were a mere man, we would either, if we believe Jesus is a mere man, we're either very uninformed or we're not saved. There's something special and unique about Jesus. Okay. Belief is relational, not informational. 1 John uh, 1, seven. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, religion, even good, solid religion, may produce people who are more part of a club than they are part of a family. It's just what happens. You know, many of those who associate with a church or a belief system are kind of like those who come January, they join a gym, right? And then they let that, that little gym fob dangle from their keys for everyone to see for the next 12 months, but they never go to the gym. But they're members? Yeah. It, it can be like that. And that does not equate to biblical belief. Not at all. Biblical belief involves a relationship with God and with others. And we've talked about that. I, I, oh, I have a relationship with God. I don't need people. The way Jesus designed it, you've got to be part of a body of believers, part of a church. Next one. Salvation is reserved for honest sinners alone. Salvation is only for honest sinners. First uh, John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Yes, there are actually people who believe that they've never sinned. John says that they are self-deceived. There is no forgiveness, no eternal life for anyone who is not honest about their sin. Okay, next one. We cannot pay for our own sin. We can't really do anything about our own sin. First uh, John 2.1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. i got to add to this, 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. Now, my religious upbringing, the way I was trained, involved the good book and the bad book. I remember it vividly. Is that, I mean, it was, maybe it was only my family. The good book and the bad I was taught that in determining my entry into heaven, at some point, God would weigh my good behaviors over against my bad behaviors and see where it pans out. And that wasn't really a bad thing. It was actually fine until I was around 13 years old. And my bad words, my bad deeds, and my bad thoughts were quickly outweighing my past good. It was evident to me back then. John teaches us that Jesus alone is the only one who could pay for your sin 
and my sin, and that there's no back door into heaven for the rest of the world. There's no many roads leading to heaven. Jesus is the only way to access God. Next one, Jesus is sinless. I'm running through these, I know, it's okay. It's New Year's. Jesus is sinless, 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Next one, Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. God became a man. An act, Jesus was an actual man. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, Gunnar explained that there was this, this teaching during John's day that Jesus was certainly God, but that he could not have been a literal man because, well, only evil exists in the flesh. And so the teaching was that Jesus was merely this mystical appearance of a man and in the form of a man. Now, we don't see the Gnostic view so much today, but it was big back then. Still, some today may hold that Jesus is certainly a mythical concept of good from back then, an idea of goodness we need to cling to, and that would not be saving belief. So, how you doing? Where do you measure up? Pretty easy. How does your belief in Jesus hold up to the these things taught by John? Jesus is eternal, Is your belief informational or relational? Are you honestly a sinner? The sinless Jesus died to pay for your sin and my sin. Are you there? Only Jesus, not us, can pay for sin, and then eternal Jesus was a real man, not a legend. Those are the these things that are taught by John. Those are the things that if if you believe those things about Jesus, you know you have eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. God wants us to know that we have eternal life. I want to transition now to some biblical difficulties because anyone that spent time in the Bible understands that there is a rest of the story, and we don't want to avoid that. I want to spend a moment addressing biblical objections to the idea that you can know that we have eternal life. Now, where John teaches that we can know we have eternal life and that eternal life is appropriated through believing in the name of the Son of God alone, there are other verses in the Bible that have caused many to conclude that either they cannot know that they are saved or that even if they know they're saved today, they could lose it tomorrow. I mean, even in a church like this, where we believe by, by, uh, by statement that um, we believe people that are saved are in fact saved indeed. There's also the mindset that we look at certain behaviors and say, well, they were probably not saved in the first place. And that's really no better. This morning, I'm not going to argue the issue on behalf of other people. We're not interested in telling why the opposing view is wrong. That's not the issue here. But still, for that person that's sitting right here in this audience who wrestles with some of those challenging verses, who personally wonders, I, what about this verse or that? I want to address the difficult verses and hopefully bring you some peace and stability on these issues. Now, Ephesians 4.12 tells us that church leaders 
are there to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry. That's Gunner's job. That's why we're here. A major part of the commission is the teaching us of how to properly read our Bibles. And an astute listener will catch that Pastor Gunner regularly mixes in guidance on how to understand the Bible as he teaches the content of the Bible. Uh, you've heard that the first three rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, and context, right? You've heard that here. That means that we read the entire passage, not just one verse. Well, let me give you another one today, another principle in understanding the Bible. If you want to avoid confusion, always interpret unclear passages from the clear passages. Always interpret the unclear from the clear. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Let me illustrate to you uh, this. Uh, tell me if these passages are clear or unclear. You ready? First uh, John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. Is that unclear or clear? Pretty clear, right? How about this one? Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Clear or unclear? It's very harsh. It's very harsh. But what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And while the words of Jesus are certainly authoritative and clear, there are volumes written on this verse over the last 2,000 years. And that demonstrates that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, in fact, unclear. What is it? And how many times have you heard someone say, I think I may have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? They really wrestle with this. And while you may have formed your own opinion as to a private understanding as to what this means to you, it still remains a disputed passage. There are clear passages and there are unclear passages. Always interpret the unclear from the clear. Take your assurance from clear passages, not from unclear passages. That In my experience, and I'm still on this journey, folks, in my experience, most of the seemingly loss of salvation verses or passages are cleared up when we either look at the context or we apply the principle of looking at the clear over the unclear. Now, if you are genuinely troubled by a passage as it applies to you, not your brother-in-law, but as it applies to you, then you really should reach out to Pastor Gunner or one of the, one of the teachers here in the church, and we'd, we'd love to discuss those passages with you. Not to sway you, not to argue the point, not to have us write counter papers, but God wants you to know that you have eternal life. He doesn't want you to torment with the tug of war of that issue. And some of you know what it means to worry and, to, and torment day after day. Was I saved or not saved? Am I saved? It's a terrible place to be. God does not dangle you over that a little pit like that. Okay. Now, I would like to say that the these things apply entirely to your belief about the person and work of Christ. But 1 John also addresses behaviors. So must we. So let me showcase just a few behavioral verses in 1 John. 1 John 1.6 If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. Uh, 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2.28, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 3.8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And then 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, the fact is there are behavioral expectations for those who have believed in the name of the Son of God. God wants you to know that you have eternal life. And that life is appropriated by belief in the name of the Son of God. Still, that life should produce behaviors that are consistent with life. Now, we might say, we might say, our attitudes and actions of love are evidence that we have, in fact, truly entered into eternal life. Let me say that again. We might say that our attitudes and actions of love are evidence that we have, in fact, truly entered eternal life. But that statement is not entirely true. Let that dangle as we transition to our last point. Why it's important to know that you have eternal life. This is where the rubber meets the road. Whenever we teach together both salvation by belief alone and behaviors consistent with eternal life, whenever we do that in the same sermon, as John does, we risk communicating a behavior-based salvation. You know, we're back to the good book and the bad book. It's where our mind naturally goes. It's the way we're wired. It's just the way the natural mind works. Cause and effect. Let me, let me demonstrate. Let me demonstrate. 1 John 5.2. 1 John 5.2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His... You know what? Never mind. Let me jump to another John passage that really spells it out. John 14.15. This is, this is clear as clear can be. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Therefore, what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Therefore, keep my commandments, right? But that's entirely backwards. It's wrong. Yes, we need motivation to keep his commandments, but the solution to the struggle between keeping his commandments and not keeping his commandments is not a New Year's resolution to better keep his commandments. Again, the verse, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Therefore, love me. Therefore, love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The emphasis is on loving God. Are you supposed to keep commandments? Yes, but it's loving God. If you struggle with keeping God's commandments, the solution is to fall in love with the Savior. Make the pursuit of Jesus your passion. That's the solution to keeping His commandments according to the text. How do I do that? Well, look at Isaac, now married, right? Recall Isaac lives here and communicates with a dear girl. Isaac then goes to the place where he could be close to the dear girl. Isaac began to meet people who enjoy the dear girl. 
It's not rocket science. It's the same with pursuing Jesus. It's the same. Spending time with, getting close to, going to the place, get away from that other place, going after Jesus like you mean it. Listen, the goal of religion is to make us be good. The goal of religion is to make us be good. The goal of biblical Christianity is to transform us into Christ-likeness. There's a difference. Religion be good, biblical Christianity, Christ-likeness. Christian, both your destiny and your present journey is toward Christ-likeness. That's what's going on. That's why they're concerned about finances. That's why the tire is going bad, but it's still okay when it gets you. That's why there's a crack in the window. The journey towards Christ-likeness. Romans 8.29 says this, For whom he foreknew, this is the predestination passage, he predestined us to go to heaven, right? For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's what you're predestined to do that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ-likeness is God's goal for all who put their trust in Jesus. And that should be our goal as well, Christ-likeness. Not rule-keeping, Christ-likeness. And this is exactly why it's imperative that you are able to know that you have eternal life. Surety of your right standing before God empowers one to train toward Christ-likeness. Why? Because of the inevitable failures along the way. Inevitable failures along the way. As one journeys towards Christ-likeness, God's curriculum necessarily brings to light your flaws and inadequacies. Little by little, over the span of a lifetime, exposure to your own sinful bents is necessary as God tweaks and hones away your inconsistent thoughts and behaviors. It's a brutal journey, folks. Friends, you and I are capable of levels of sin beyond imagination, and God knows that. That sin must lovingly, even brutally, be dealt with as we transition towards Christ's likeness. And as God grows us out of that sin, it very frequently exposes that sin to yourself and to others and makes you look not so Christ-like. We see that the ugly sin, as he purges it over time, maybe even a long time, God doesn't simply paint over dirt to make us look good, the way I fix machines, paint over rust, right? He takes time the time necessary to genuinely purify us. Purify us from what? Well, purify us from us. It's in there, folks. So, on the one hand, our attitudes and actions of love are evidence that we have, in fact, truly entered into eternal life. But it's just as true that the exposure of our attitudes and actions of sin can actually be evidence that we are also on a beautiful journey towards Christ-likeness. They're both just as valid. Don't be so quick to write off people as you see them get back into that thing. You know, in training warriors and Christians, and make no mistake, Christianity is a warfare, we learn that there's no genuine training without failure along the way. The guy's got to stumble. You know this from kids. Uh, toddlers fall as they learn to walk, Right? It's, it's expected. It's going to happen. So keep this in mind the next time you feel yourself so easily drawn back 
to the things which you used to like, even though they were contrary to God. God has not rejected you in that process. He wants you to know that you have eternal life, so that when you stumble, he can pick you back up. It's okay. He hasn't thrown you out. If we could not know we have eternal life, we would be tempted to throw in the towel every time we morally fail ourselves. And so much more for those of you who have been on the journey for decades. Then the next thing comes out. Until you're 62, then it all ends. It's coming, baby. But God is not thwarted by our weakness. The freedom that comes from knowing that you are indeed in possession of eternal life, empowers you to press on toward Christ-likeness, to not quit. Just one more push-up, just one more journey, just one more flight, keep going. Across the board, the most mature Christians we have ever known towards the end of their lives will tell you what incredible sinners they are. They get it. We're such sinful creatures. So, how about you? If your thoughts from this week were displayed for all to see, would they demonstrate a certain degree of piety or a person in need of a lot of grace on their journey towards Christ-likeness? And how about your internet history this week or maybe your driving habits? What do they demonstrate? The fact is, if this verse were not true, then an honest inward appraisal would make each of us realize that in thought and deed, we've all missed the mark. Thanks be to God, the issue is not whether or not we have hit or missed a mark, but whether or not we believe in the name of the Son of God. That's the issue. But what about my brother-in-law? We don't care about your brother-in-law. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. So what about you? Do you believe, have you personally appropriated all that is contained in the name of Jesus? God came in the flesh, God died for your sins, Jesus cleanses you, so on. If you believe, if you put your faith in, if you trust that Jesus alone is the means of taking away your sin burden, then according to God's word, you both know and can continue to know that you have eternal life. Isn't that great? We're going to participate in communion, the Lord's Supper, today, if the servers want to come and get that ready. It's kind of fitting. It's never not fitting, I suppose. With all of this in mind, it's really appropriate. You want to just distribute? Yeah, there you go, however you guys do it. It's really appropriate that we participate in communion today. And it's, it's telling, it's very telling, that in some Religious circles, communion, sacrament, is a necessary means of grace to qualify you to enter in to eternal life. It's one of those steps to get to eternal life. Thank you. But the Bible teaches that communion, the Lord's, the Lord's Supper, of which we're about to partake, is actually a means for those who already possess eternal life based on the work of Jesus alone to celebrate the work 
that Jesus has done on your behalf, on my behalf. That's why we do this. It's a celebration. On the night before his crucifixion, the evening before Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, he met with his closest followers for a last meal. And that that Passover meal they were celebrating was, in fact, a reminder of the time that God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery. And that perpetual reminder was instituted by God to remind every generation that he is the God who delivers people out of their slavery of sin. That's why he said do this. It's a reminder. Now, in our tradition, we're going to pass out the elements and then I'll pray and then we'll uh, take these elements as one body together. But let me ask you, have you believed in the name of Jesus for the removal of your sin, for entering eternal life? If you have, this is for you. If you're on the fence, you're like, I don't know if I believe all that stuff. That's fine. Just be honest. Just be honest. Let me give you a time of uh, reflection to think about what Jesus has done for us with his body and blood, and then we'll uh, partake of the elements. In Luke 22, we learn that at that last Passover meal, he said, and when Jesus had taken some of the bread and given thanks over it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Matthew 26, he tells us, and when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Lord Jesus, what a blessing to have a tangible reminder of what you have done for us to include us amongst those who can know they have eternal life. Let's go ahead and pray as we close. Heavenly Father, You don't have to tell us that we have eternal life. You can tell us how we might get it, and we could really strive to hold to that, and you could have set up a system where we basically dangle over the pit of hell just in case you better be good. That's not the way you did it. You're the kind of God that wants to give us peace and surety, which is hard for us because we see the sin within, and you tell us, oh, no, you haven't even begun to see the sin within. And yet you've given us this great gift, not just eternal life, but the knowledge that we could know we are saved. Lord God, if anybody has challenges this morning, I pray that the verses would come to mind that trouble them and they would be honest about those verses, not to argue, but to to weed out these things, to have a, a very definite view about what's right in this. For you, O oh God, want us to appropriate the gift you've given us, the knowledge that we do have eternal life. And we bless you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.